0: I'm now joined by Elizabeth Kashner, Director of Global Funds Research at FactSet, who's a leading provider of financial data and analytics. And Elizabeth heads up all of their ETF and mutual fund uh, classifications, along with conducting analysis on everything from fund costs to risk to uh, trading issues to performance. She really handles it all. And she's now on the line with me from Berkeley, California. Elizabeth, welcome back to the podcast.
1: I'm so happy to be here, Nate. Good morning.
0: All right. So you recently published two fantastic pieces. The first was titled H1 2022 ETF flows, steadfast, brave, and foolhardy. And then the second was titled cheapest ETFs make bear markets less painful. And I should note, these are both posted at insight.factset.com. Highly recommend everyone check these out. Uh, but, Elizabeth, I noted this at the top. So, obviously, these are two different pieces, but they do share a common thread in that one of the reasons we're seeing these impressive flows into ETFs this year, despite the uh, the, the markets, is because of ETFs generally low cost, right? Investors continue seeking out lower-fee ETFs regardless. Now, I also mentioned I feel like this uh, ETF fee story overall, of course, that's not a news story, but it's one that I do think we've maybe started to take for granted a little bit, just because it's been, you know, such a story for so long. So I'm really looking forward to diving back into this topic. It's uh, one of my favorites. I, I really do want to dig into the cost side here. However, let's start with uh, ETF flows. And I'm going to tee you up like this. So I'm going to give listeners a stat from your first piece, which I found simply mind-boggling. So listen to this. First half 2022 ETF flows of $332 billion exceed the full-year inflows for every year from 1993 to 2016. They also nearly match the full-year inflows from 2018 and 2019. So let's start there. Talk about uh, ETF inflows overall thus far in uh, 2022. Pretty remarkable.
1: You know, I I think given the retrenchment that we've seen in the global equity market and the U.S. investment-grade fixed income, it's been extraordinary. And, uh, you know, I I, I think it takes some courage to continue to uh, to buy as uh, asset values fall. And uh, we've seen that kind of courage in spades from ETF investors in the first half of the year. You know, I think you, you, you mentioned just the overall levels, uh, but I feel like the character has been a little bit different as well. So in the, in the boom years of 2020 and 2021, we saw quite a bit of performance chasing with uh, high-flying, top-performing ETFs attracting billions and billions of new investor dollars, uh, you know, growth-seeking and tactical. Uh, but This year, we really, um, those dollars have gone away, and we're seeing very different behavior. Uh, I shouldn't say they've gone away. They've mostly gone away, but they've also sort of shifted their attention a little bit. Uh, You know, certainly when when you look at um, just the level of equity flows, you know, equity is really holding up the market right now for ETFs. that we are we're we're on pace to have um, the second highest ever annual equity flows.
0: Elizabeth, on the uh, equity ETF side, you mentioned the uh, sort of the changing composition of flows. Can you talk a little bit more uh, about that? Because I, I thought this was interesting in your piece, and to me, really highlighted the ability of ETFs to adapt to any market environment. So, t- talk about some of the changes underneath the surface here.
1: Oh, I'm happy to. So, you know, it's fact that we look at the equity market um, in three categories. We look at the, the size and style funds, which uh, you know chop up the universe by market cap size or by growth or value, but also include the broad total market core holdings, um, plus sector funds, and then uh, ETFs that are specifically geared towards uh, a high dividend yield. And you know in, in the in the fomo years in 2020 and twenty twenty one we really saw an insurge into uh, sector funds, but uh, this year that set of flows reversed so you know in twenty twenty one we saw one hundred and twenty two billion going into sector funds this year we had outflows just one point four billion so it's the change in direction that is really uh, significant there um And then all of the slack in terms of market share was taken up in the other two categories. Um, Size and style usually comprise about 80% of uh, the overall equity ETF market, but they got about 90% of the flows. And the remaining 10% went to those high dividend yield funds. Uh, You know, and I, I should say, I'm not really clear about whether those investors were replacing fixed income positions with dividend yielding equities, or whether uh, it felt like more of a defensive
0: play. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, you look at dividend ETFs, last I checked, they're on pace to uh, break their annual record in terms of inflows, and I I think blow it away. And I do think there's been interest in more just defensive ETF strategies overall, when you think about dividend ETFs and and value and and those sorts of things. What about uh, active ETFs? I know you noted that actively managed strategies have attracted excess inflows. And that's come at the expense of plain vanilla strategies. Uh, does that surprise you at all?
1: Um, it does a little bit, Nate, uh, because I think what we had been seeing was kind of a, a, a bloom is off the road. You know, for for years, we would seen investor interest decline in the so-called smart beta product. Uh, we saw a big rush into ESG. ESG has also Fallen off pace, somewhat positive flows, but not quite, uh, not quite living up to their market share. And what's come in to take their place, I think, is an interest in active management. And you know, we we don't have any tools that really measure what investors are thinking when they press buy. But um, I I do think that there are some who look to active management as a defensive strategy.
0: You mentioned uh, ESG ETFs and and how they've maybe lost their edge a little bit. That really caught my attention. And I think listeners know, you know, look, I've been, uh, we'll say, skeptical of ESG ETFs overall. But do do you make anything of the fact that the flows have been a bit more muted this year compared to uh, past years in the ESG ETF space?
1: Well, you know, I, I think there have been a number of different stories circulated about ESG, uh, but one of them has always been that ESG will give you market returns with below market risk. Uh, and frankly, that's never been true. Uh, and so, uh, you know, like other instances where risk-adjusted outperformance has been touted, uh, if it's not delivered, then investors kind of sour on the concept. Mm -hmm. You know, I also think we've seen a greater focus on uh, proxy voting and a more direct way that investors have the ability to influence corporate behavior. And so, you know, it may be that the uh, buyer's strike method of activism is on the wane.
0: When you think about the pace of ETF flows overall this year, so we're, we're on pace for the second best year ever behind last year. Uh, You look at the inflows into equity ETFs, again, tracking for the second highest uh, pace ever on on stock ETFs. I'm I'm curious, how big of a factor do you think taxable investors are here, where perhaps the market declines have uh, unlocked their ability to move out of, say, expensive, uh, underperforming mutual funds and other investment products and into ETFs? Do you think that's playing a, a meaningful role in the ETF inflows this year?
1: I, I think that it's been a really good opportunity. You know, we we do have a lot of uh, investors who are are really quite done with their expensive active products but felt really trapped in there. And so when you have a market reversal, there is the opportunity to get out with, a, you know, no tax hit or, more realistically, probably less of a tax hit. You know, I think we also have to remember that global equity markets were down 17%, not 50%, not 80%, right? Where many of the longtime holders have their cost basis way back in the day. And so, you know, 17% reversal might not necessarily be enough for them. Uh, But for sure, there's been an opportunity for that.
0: All right, before we get to uh, fees, I really want to dig into the cost side of the equation. I have to ask you about leverage ETFs. And I was discussing this a little bit earlier with uh, Vetify's Tom Hendrickson. But my take from reading your piece was that uh, I'll say you were a bit puzzled with the sizable flows into leverage stock ETFs. Now, I, I guess I might argue that maybe this is just another example of a trader sort of spinning the roulette wheel, right? They're literally gambling in a more volatile market environment. But do you want to explain what you, uh, you found here on the leveraged ETFs? I thought this, again, really jumped out at me in your piece.
1: Well, sure, you know, just sort of going back to the theme that we, we had a lot of performance chasing in 2020 and 2021, uh, there was a, a way that you could understand it and saying, well, this asset is going up, people think the momentum will continue, they're just getting on the train. It's really hard to make that argument when you've got asset values in free fall and investors just keep plowing more money in. Uh, so th- this would comprise the foolhardy section of <laughs> of my blog, right? And and the the market returns have been pretty terrible in the the two ETFs that garnered the most inflows in the geared space, uh, TQQQ, which is three x the Nasdaq 100, and SOXL, which is three uh, x uh, semiconductors. We we had losses of seventy one percent, eighty one percent over a half year period and uh, the asset weighted returns were even worse, right? And this is at a time when the, the Qs and the semis underperformed global equity markets by you know two to one, pretty much. And so it's really, when, when, when you're coming off of, a, of that FOMO context of momentum chasing on the upside, it's quite confounding to see momentum chasing on the downside. You know, I I think I've been joking to myself that uh, people got punished in crypto and perhaps developed a taste for hot chili pepper on the tongue and figured (laughs) out, well, where else can I get punished?
0: I mean, you look at the numbers here. They really are. They're staggering. So you mentioned TQQQ. Again, that's lost more than 70 percent in the first half of the year. Investors put nine billion dollars into that product. Uh, SOXL, the uh, the 3 times semiconductor bull you mentioned, again, lost over 80%. Investors put 5000000000 billion-plus in- into that fund in the first half of the year. It's just amazing. And you had a stat, too, which I think uh, bears repeating here. So leveraged ETFs overall attracted 8% of year-to-date flows versus the five-year average of a little over 1%. So, you know, pretty interesting. And, and guess what, Elizabeth? Now we have single-stock ETFs. <laughs> for uh, investors to gamble with.
1: Yeah, and that's very <laughs> much a do-your-homework product. Uh, I, need, I need to say that geared ETFs are also very much a do-your-homework do your product. And one of the ways that they confound investors is by uh, returning exactly what they say they're going to do on a one-day basis, but over multiple periods of days, it's not possible to predict their returns because they reset their exposure every day.
0: Yeah, and that point cannot be driven home enough. Uh, I try to drive it home at every opportunity on this podcast.
1: What makes Capital Group's new suite of actively managed ETFs different? It's powered by a company with a seasoned global team, a history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core with our new ETFs. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors Inc., member FINRA.
0: Um, okay, let's uh let's pivot and talk fees here. And you noted that despite everything that we, we just discussed, some you know, some of these changes underneath the surface of ETF flows, the one thing that hasn't changed is the investor preference for lower cost ETFs. You said this continues to be, quote, a powerful force. And again, I want to give a stat here from your piece, and then I'll just let you go wherever you want with this. So at mid-year, the asset-weighted average expense ratio for all U.S. ETFs was just 18 basis points, 18 basis points, which is almost hard to believe. And that's already down a, a little bit from the end of last year. So I'll just hand this over to you. Give us some highlights on the ETF fee side of the equation.
1: Sure. Uh- I'd be happy to. You know, I, I took a look at fees overall, and I also took a look at them broken down by asset class and by investment strategy. And long story short, some are starting from a higher level than others, but they're all moving in the same direction, which is to say downward. So, you know, overall, uh, we saw the, uh, the the asset-weighted average expense ratio down three-tenths of one basis point in a six-month period. Um, that's actually a slightly slower drop than 2021, um, the you know, six-tenths of a basis point annualized versus eight-tenths, but there's no question on which direction it's going. Um, and I calculated that if you used asset levels from uh, the end of June, investors have saved $90 million just this year in fee compression.
0: Can you talk specifically about active ETFs? I know you spent a lot of time digging in on on these in particular, and you noted that the biggest change by far in terms of, of where fees have headed were on the actively managed equity ETF side, which fell by like nine basis points in just six months. And you noted that if this trend were to continue through year end, actively managed equity ETFs could cost around just 31 basis points, which would be less than half of their cost at the end of 2020. I mean, that's a a staggering statistic. Can you talk about what's been happening on the fee side and active ETFs? And then I'd also like to dig in a little bit just on the impact of mutual fund to ETF conversions.
1: Yeah, I think we can't really ignore that factor at all. And uh, yes, the fee compression in uh, active management and specifically active equity uh, has been staggering in its speed. You know, you, you gave some of the Headline statistics. There, you know, I, I think um, it's really important to uh, to to take a, a detailed look in this space and see what's going on. Um, you know, I took a look at one market segment. Um, it's U.S. total market. So, you know, not chopping things up by size or style, not chopping things up by sector. Just the whole U.S. equity market is your sandbox. Go for it. Um, and I took the asset-weighted expense ratio of um, every ETF provider that is uh, competing in the space, and I lined them up from cheap to expensive. And then I took a look at what were the natural flows over the half year. Um, and by natural, I mean excluding the mutual fund to ETF conversions since uh, those, those dollars came into the strategies over a period of years. They didn't come in on conversion day. And, and when you look at that, you know, what you see is an extraordinary overweight on the far left, which is the cheap side of my chart. Um, you know, Dimensional alone captured more than 50% of the natural flows into there, the excluding conversion flows. Uh, Dimensional has funds actively managed ETFs in that space that cost 11 basis points, 12 basis points, and 19 basis points. Uh, so, You know, is it any wonder that the funds that cost 50 or 60 or 80 basis points are not able to compete? You know, just a a couple of stats for you. Um, In this U.S. total market segment, ETFs that cost 16 basis points or less captured three out of every four dollars that came into uh, active management. Whereas actively managed ETFs that cost forty basis points or more took in just eleven percent of the active flows. So, you know, I I think the message is pretty clear. If you want to compete, you better be in the under twenty crowd.
0: Well, and you know what what uh, I'm recalling here. So I don't know if you've read uh, Bloomberg's uh, Eric Balchunas his his book on Jack Bogle. Fantastic book, by the way. Recommend everybody check that out. But you know, he talks a lot about the real trend here being you know, low cost versus high cost, not active versus passive. And I think we're starting to see that play out, right? Where you have these active strategies that are coming in at a lower price point. They're seeing flows. We, we talked a little bit earlier about the outsized flows into active products. And I think this gets back into the importance of cost, right? That ultimately, cost is the, the, the biggest driver here. It's not so much the active versus passive strategies. I guess, do, do you agree with that thought?
1: I would say I agree with that partly and uh, you know certainly Eric did a masterful job in his book if we were on video you'd see that it's literally sitting on the desktop uh, <laughs> over my left shoulder um so uh, uh, kudos to Eric there um you know active management has always been a zero sum game uh because every active bet against the market has an existing and precisely opposite bet the other way Uh, and over any given time period only one of the two bets will pay off and the other one won't um but it's no question that uh when you pile high fees on top of that active risk it's outperformance becomes just that much more difficult Uh, and i think that's why i i titled this piece that uh, cheaper etfs make bear markets a little bit less painful you know, when you're waiting, whether you're waiting for outperformance or market performance or whatever it is, every day that you're waiting, you're paying table stakes, which are the uh, the fees associated with your investment. The lower the table stakes, the higher your chances of success.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, th- that your point on, on just waiting during a, a bear market. Let, let me read the quote. I actually flagged this. So you said waiting for a market bounce feels less awful when it doesn't cost much fee wise. And I really like that because if you think about it, that is in stark contrast to how things were perceived, say, 10 or 15 years ago, where there was this idea that if you pay more for your investments, that's going to help uh, protect you from market volatility or or market downturns. But of course, we've done like a a full 180 here. I, I guess, do you think that we could possibly flip back and maybe these fee trends reverse if the markets were to stay really volatile, or perhaps we go down much more significantly from here. Or do you feel like this focus on fees is now set in stone moving forward that this is a trend. It's going to remain intact. It's going to be tough to, uh, to, you know, sort of move, uh, it all moving forward.
1: So Nate, I feel like at heart, your question is, uh, will investors remain rational? Um, because of what I explained earlier, the relentless math of active management, there will be some active management that outperforms and that earns those high fees, you know, whether it's by market timing and getting you in and out at the right time, whether it's by sector selection or security selection. Um, but you know the ability of the average investor to identify those ahead of time, put money in at the right time, take money out at the right time, it's extraordinarily difficult. and I think, you know, in the financial crisis, a lot of investors learned that lesson very painfully that the, uh, the skilled managers that they had been looking to for protection didn't deliver. Uh, and that, you know, failure to deliver has been a constant. All you have to do is open any FEBA study, any half year, S&P active versus index, to see that active mutual fund managers simply aren't able to beat their benchmarks over a long period of time. And so, you know, with that framework, it's. I, 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 I think the understanding in the investment community that uh, active risk is a real risk and that fees matter and they affect your returns forever is, uh, is a huge determinant. That said, Nate, we saw so much irrationality with the chasing of the triple levered products that we talked about. That, you know, if you're asking me, will, uh, will rationality outweigh irrationality, I just can't say.
0: <laughs> well, I, uh, I actually tweeted out last night, if you remember the, uh, the rock NFTs, the, the rock JPEG, uh, you, when you talk about rationality, a year ago, believe it or not, a picture of a rock was selling for uh, the cost of over a thousand ounces of gold. So, so maybe your point, we can't always uh, depend on investors uh, staying rational, o- hopefully uh, a little more rational moving forward. But I'll just add one thing to your point on uh, on focusing on cost. I always think back to the Morningstar study where they found that cost is the single biggest predictor of future returns of funds. And in, in other words, the lower the cost, the better chance you have of, uh, of capturing the best returns in the market. And- you know, I think until the data shows us something different, you know, I'm always very data dependent that that cost will continue to be a factor, whether we're talking about, again, passive or active strategies. Cost is just uh, so important. But Elizabeth, before I let you go, any uh, any parting words on either ETF flows or, or costs?
1: Um, you know, I think what you said earlier about the the uh, sea war maybe have fallen out of the headlines. Uh, but investor behavior, not paying attention to the headlines so much. I really took heart from that for the first half of 2021. And I think that's the the steadfast part of my title, that, uh, uh, you know, away from the headlines about performance, away from the flashy objects, away from the crypto space, uh, you know, away from thematics, away from ESG. What we continue to see is long-term faith in our capital markets in the most efficient and effective vehicles. So to all of those investors out there who are not making the headlines but are quietly behaving in a, a, a proactive, efficient manner, bravo.
0: Well, I think that's the perfect ending point for this week, Elizabeth. Just great insight. Again, really enjoyed your two pieces. Uh, Listeners, again, really recommend checking these out if you haven't already. But Elizabeth, thank you for joining me this week.
1: Thank you so much, Nate. It's been a real pleasure.
0: That was Elizabeth Kashner, Director of Global Funds Research at FactSet.